You're listening to The Byliners, presented by The Gateway. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to The Byliners, presented by The Gateway, University of Alberta's student-run magazine. I'm your host, Tom Dekezi, the arts and culture editor at The Gateway, and I'm here with The Gateway's news editor, Kadra Ahmed. Hello, everybody. Hi, Kadra. Hey, Kadra. Also here with the opinion editor, Mitchell Pollack. Hey, hey, hey. And our one and only online editor, Pia Cole. Hey. hey. So I wasn't here a uh, previous episode because I had the flu during coronavirus. So that's uh, that's all you need to know about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is like, I don't know. I feel if you have the flu, like, if you had the flu in the last eight months, it's just coronavirus light. Um, Yo, I like got the symptoms and I was like, man, of course, of course this would happen to me. Even though I stayed home like all the time, I like get my groceries delivered and stuff. It's like, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, So yeah, this is the uh, second episode of the Byliners. We had our debut uh, last week. It was a fun time. It was just me, Mitchell and Kadra. Like Pia said, she was uh, down with the flu, the not COVID flu um but she's back today some of you might actually recognize pia's voice from the show trailer um she comes up a couple times in there i actually had a few people ask me if that episode would ever come out um who knows oh, really who knows who like for now? episode zero episode yeah episode zero um I, I, i'm not gonna name people on air but um, <laughs> it's just his parents <laughs> No, what? one of the Wait, many uh, girls that uh tom uh talking to about his podcast savage that was savage i'm serious but yeah uh, i don't know if that episode's ever gonna come out uh, maybe one day maybe like if we take like a break for christmas we can like drop it i'm thinking that might be a cool idea um, yeah. So yeah, it's kind of our, our secret episode, but Pia is here in the flesh um, with us. Pia, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about you? Like, what's, what's the, what are the highlights? Okay, so I'm finishing up my sociology degree with a minor in political science. Um, I love to cook. I will stand behind the stove for like nine hours to make some sort of crazy like four course meal if I want to, because literally it's so good for my anxiety like it that's what i like to do for fun and um i'm currently playing next to a jack russell terrier and that's that's i I think that's all you gotta know about me really (laughs) yeah i guess we'll we'll learn the rest as the show goes on i can verify um i think we can all hear verify that p is a legit like badass cook every once in a while she'll drop like pictures in the in our work chat of what she's eating that day I'm just always shame. Like I'm just sitting there eating like some carrots and hummus. <laughs> I was like, oh man, my life sucks. <laughs> but, Words but yeah. can't explain how badly I want to try Pia's cooking. It looks amazing. Like actually, yeah. I've yeah, it's been months. I'm yeah, COVID doing us all dirty. All dirty. Um, but yeah, that's a uh, that's Pia, and uh, this is. I guess the official full cast of the byliners. We are the byliners. Hear us roar. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I don't know if the lineup's going to change at any point, but this is uh, kind of what we're settled on. Um, so, if you want to like get more background info, like about the show, I'd probably suggest checking out 
last week's episode, but just to give people another quick, uh, I guess, reminder of the format of the show, we're just going to start with just like catching up with each other, seeing, you know, what's going on in everybody's lives. Um, and then going into headlines, which is kind of the meat of the show, talking about the biggest things happening in, in news and pop culture, and then always ending with a section specifically on U of A news, because, you know, this, we do work for the University of Alberta's student run magazine. So that's, uh, that is super important. Um, there is obviously the elephant in the room in terms of, in terms of headlines. Um, I think there's one headline was pretty much dominated, um, this last week. If you're, if you're wondering the date, it's November 8th, 2020. Um, but you know what, let's actually save that a little bit and just talk about a very Edmonton thing, um, which is snow. Uh, it's just snowed quite a bit over this last, does anyone know how many centimeters it was? Oh, wasn't it around 30? Around uh, two Jack Russell Terriers standing up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right. Like, I remember I, I shoveled, like, on on Saturday morning, and, like, by noon, it was all undone. Um, some of us here are actually happy about it. Um, Mitch. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's snowing. It's winter. I'm so ready. It came all in one day. None of y'all were prepared for it. But I was, I was blasting Mariah Carey all day. Um, I blasted some Frank Sinatra when I woke up. Uh, let it snow. I love winter. I love snow. And I'm really here for this. Yeah. So meanwhile, Tom is out here trying to shovel his driveway like Sisyphus <laughs> pushing the rock up the mountain. Mm-hmm. And Tom's like, mm-hmm, all I want for Christmas is you. Like, <laughs> yeah. hey, to be... To be fair, Sipasis is supposed to like enjoy doing it. If if Sipasis finds joy in it, it's supposed to get better. That's what that's what some philosophers say. Thanks, so, Mitch. But also, he's doing it because he has to. Yeah, you know? yeah, Mitch. That wasn't the comfort I was looking for. Like. <laughs> if you love snow, snow will love you back. Yeah. Miss, honestly, stop mm. this. <laughs> what are you talking about? Snow, <laughs> snow kills people. Snow kills people. It does. It does. Uh, yeah. Frostbite, man. Frostbite, avalanches. Um... People die shoveling a lot, actually. Really? For real? Like, yeah. Snow? No, they just go too hard and they have like a heart attack or something. <laughs> what? It's like. I'm not, I'm not trying to laugh at that, but that one. Is... It's true. Look it up. It's like <laughs> in the top five Canadian ways to die. to die. Other than like, I don't know, drinking a too hot, like, double double. <laughs> or like, I don't know. Uh, Honestly, though, Kadra, I'm blaming that on that person's heart, not on the snow. The snow stays. I want to point out that Mitchell is the only white person. <laughs> I, it's an important note, I will say, in this conversation. That, 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 that is almost like a throwback to a conversation we had on, on the secret episode <laughs> of Mitch talking mm-hmm. about how much he loves winter, while the rest of us, um, who are all a little more melanated, are suffering from, suffering from depression and vitamin D deficiency. <laughs> and I really want to stress, like, for me personally, only just a little bit more melanated because I have anemia, regardless. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> P has got her own ailments. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about... Okay. <laughs> Honestly, though... <laughs> Snow can be enjoyed by all. Snow, there's something in snow for everyone. If Edmontonians, if Edmontonians learn to love snow, it would be amazing. Like the sun kills people too. The sun kills more people probably. The sun's like a direct, like 
result of like skin cancer and heat stroke and all those other gross things. The sun is life giving. Snow <laughs> is life bringing. Uh, all right okay <laughs> you know what? okay let's 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 move on from this from this bs and propaganda um i think i think yeah moving on to probably the biggest headline um from the week so like i said before uh, it is november 8th which means we are six days removed from day one of the of the u.s presidential election presidential election <laughs> that was a pretty wild week um it was. yeah obviously if you don't already know um, Joe Biden is now the, I guess, president-elect or projected winner. Yo, uh, imagine finding out the news via a Byliners <laughs> podcast. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Some people, you know, some people might be just turned off their phones oh waiting God. for Monday afternoon <laughs> to get filled in. I would, I would be touched. I would be touched. Um, but anyway, I guess, how was this last week for everybody? Um, were um, you all, like, keeping, keeping track or just kind of... Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big politics nerd. I, I'm I, everyone here knows this. Um, I major in political science. Um, my partner also majors in political science. We actually had like a watch party just for ourselves to watch the results. So I stayed up till like this, one a.m. Look, this is the day one, or you did this like all three days of the election. <laughs> okay. Day one. Um, although honestly, all the days of the election were basically a watch party. I I like I honestly had the New York Times and. The New York Times, The Guardian, and AP's election was also all pulled up, so I would refresh them all to see what states were being called. Um, I It was, like, so stressful, um, but I'm, as someone who thinks Donald Trump is potentially, I, not potentially, just is one of the worst presidents that America ever experienced. Um, even by, even historical, like, rankings by historians back that up, and that's quite telling. And I'm just so happy he's gone. Um, I celebrated the fact that Trump left the White House yesterday when it was announced that um, Joe Biden would be the president-elect. Oh, he actually and, like left the building. Hmm. Oh yeah, he's in Mar-a-Lago right now, right? He's, he was in he was in Delaware, right? No, he was Joe golfing Biden. somewhere. Yeah. He was in <laughs> Delaware yesterday. Oh my God, guys! You remember the Four Seasons? Whoa! <laughs> that was the the most memeable moment of the last decade. I am in love with the Four Seasons total landscape. <laughs> yeah, fill, it, fill them in, Mitchell, please. Yeah. President Donald Trump, um, before the election results were technically announced as well, this was before they were even announced, which is even more embarrassing, <laughs> tweeted out that his lawyers would be holding a press conference at, at like the Four Seasons in uh -huh. uh, Philadelphia. 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 Um, oh, Philadelphia. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It was Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> and then he had to delete the tweet and put it back up because they he made a mistake. It's not the Four Seasons Hotel. It was the Four Seasons Landscaping in Philadelphia, which is like a rundown shop. It like like at it's least like by the photos. Yeah. It, yeah, it's it's not the luxurious hotel that Trump thought it was. Um, and I've seen so many, I'm friends with a lot of political staffers on Facebook, and I had more than one post this and be like, this is hilarious, but also my worst nightmare to make this mistake. So it's like an episode of Veep. Yeah, I saw a lot of, a lot of Veep references. Literally, yeah. the Four Seasons total landscaping in like the, like the outskirts of the city of Philadelphia, situated in between an adult video slash dildo store uh -huh. and a crematorium on the mm. other side of the house, <laughs> on the other side of the business. And I feel like watching the president of the United States and Rudy Giuliani in front of that business was Trump really just there, like, 
or sorry, sorry, my bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the, it's just a liminal space, right? It's just like, you could not write that. It's honestly one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> my yeah. favorite thing of the whole thing was the Four Seasons Hotel in Philadelphia had to tweet out from their <laughs> account to be like, not us. They were like, that's not our hotel. We're not affiliated. Yeah, I'm, just, starting, I'm starting to wonder if like someone tried to book the Four Seasons and then they didn't let them. <laughs> I, just... I think it was probably, like, even, like, as some, like, Knowing the backgrounds of like, so for every politician, especially political leaders in any country, they have an advanced team whose job it is to make sure that they look good no matter where they are. Yeah. So my assumption is that it was an accident because even if the Four Seasons said no, they would have gone somewhere else. They would have gone to like another hotel and they just, they made a mistake is my hypothesis and it's hilarious and brilliant. And it's, as Pia said, it's ironically beautiful. Isn't it fair that the Lansing company got the call and was like, yes. This is the Four Seasons. <laughs> you got it right. Like they, they, yeah. they named him because they know that they're not the Four Seasons. Can you imagine being the one to answer that call and you just got off the phone? And you're like, you're like, hey, John. Guess who's coming <laughs> here Wednesday? President Trump. <laughs> like they either like thought that Trump wanted to come and like, I don't know, highlight their business, or they memed him. <laughs> I don't know, but I feel as though, like, uh, that whole scenario is kind of just, like, highlighting a general trend with the Trump campaign, which is, like, an inability to admit defeat. <laughs> like, he, he, once he tweeted out the Four Seasons and realized the only option we have is a landscaping place, you know, any other, like, reasonable politician would have been like, oh, sorry about that, we're going to reschedule, go somewhere else. But in, 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 like, Trump's world, he can never lose. He's not allowed to lose. <laughs> so it's like, nah, I always meant Four Seasons total landscaping. <laughs> Um, and that's where we're going to do this press conference. So bad. It's, uh, it's wild. But yeah, I don't know. I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, Mitch, what were you going to say? Uh, I, that just gets into the bigger point, too, of the headline, which I, I think is kind of the underrated part of this is that um, despite the fact that many media outlets have called the election, yeah. uh, the incumbent president, Donald Trump, has refused to concede the election, which is crazy. He's making mass allegations of voter fraud, which are not substantiated. At, like at all and it's it's wild to actually watch it's actually wild to think about the fact that a sitting u.s president is like refuting the peaceful transfer of power which i, I think like a lot of people saw coming before the election because he'd kind of been signaling to it but it's just it's man democracy in america this is really <laughs> really the low point yeah i think like we almost have to face the reality that the last four years of trump it was really good for a lot of people like in terms of just business being good like like channels like Fox News, um, certain like political commentators, like they kind of benefit from having the political discourse be as divisive as possible. And like, just because Trump isn't, isn't in office, it doesn't mean that now they're just going to stop doing that. Like this is their whole model. I fully agree. And this is what I've said to friends, like this entire presidency, Trump is not the disease. He's literally a symptom yeah. of just the uprising of these sorts of sentiments in the U.S. and even Canada. Um, and obviously, uh, well, this, this election has a lot of implications for Canada and specifically Alberta. I'm pretty sure Mitchell yeah. had some thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think it's interesting just to see, like, I mean, my, my, the implications for Canada will more so be felt by the Biden presidency, I think. But I mean, just yeah. in general, like, just even the fact, like, Trumpism in Canada, honestly, in my opinion, is a real thing that could happen. Um, I just, I foresee that. But um, for the broader effects of the election on Canada, it, it will come from the Biden administration. And it's very weird, because now we actually have governments 
in Canada that are actually more right wing than the Biden administration on certain things, specifically energy and climate change. So that's mm-hmm. going to be what kind of shifts up to the, the biggest fight is that um, Joe Biden um, promised multiple times during the campaign period, if he were to be elected, that he would veto Keystone XL, which is a yeah. proposed pipeline coming from Alberta to the like to um, through Texas to like the Gulf. Um, uh, and basically, Joe Biden said he was going to scrap it, but um, the federal government supports it, so the Trudeau Liberals support it, and our Premier Jason Kenney has said multiple times that he supports it. He's actually put quite a substantial amount of money into making sure it gets built. Yeah, he invested 1.1 billion dollars American in it, um, with a 4.2 billion dollars loan guarantees in it, and there's quite a good chance that money might go down the drain if Joe Biden keeps his promise. And I personally think that's likely what will happen. Although it's been dis- it's being disputed if Joe will uh, keep true to that, but. Mm-hmm. That will be the biggest implication, honestly, is the fight over Keystone XL here. Uh, Premier Kenny already released a statement saying that he's going to try and fight for Keystone XL. Like he's excited to work with Biden on it, is kind of what he said in his statement. But that will be the most important repercussion um, of the Biden administration. Yeah, and I just wanted to point out that um, the U.S. presidential election, at the same time, uh, the first big audit of uh, this current provincial government and everything it's been doing came uh, came out, I think, on the same day that Biden was named president-elect. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you have had the chance to see it, but readers, I mean, readers, <laughs> oops, <laughs> listeners, um, essentially what the audit brought up and a lot of really great CBC investigative journalists like Charles, Charles Russell and like Janet French have tweeted about this as well. I would really highly recommend checking out their feeds, but the, uh, the audit found that there was a lot of really irrespons- uh, irresponsible spending done by the UCP so far, um, including like 1 million in sole source contracts from the Canadian energy war room or the Canadian energy center. Sorry, my bad. I think is the official title. Um, As well as uh, they found out that there's about 639 million oil by rail contracts that hadn't been transitioned in the way that the UCP uh, promised they would be or sold. Um, And there was just a lot of mismanagement of spending around the Canadian energy center generally, as well as I want to say, the Keystone um, Excel. So just with all of those amplifications, I'm pretty sure that the general consensus is Keystone Excel is basically dead because it's not as profitable to Americans as it would be to Canadians. So I really think that we're in for some really interesting international relations happening a little bit. Yeah, sorry. I think just to clarify for the listeners, um, yeah, Canadian Energy Center, I know you, you almost mentioned it, but it, it is also commonly known as the War Room. And it's just kind of this... Mm-hmm. Um, what would I call, like what is it a board a group or they called themselves a startup earlier on twitter earlier this week <laughs> oh my God. yeah but it's pretty much a division of like the provincial government um aimed at like fighting you know what they mm-hmm. call misinformation and smear campaigns um about alberta and specifically the energy sector um in the province uh people have been skeptical of it since the day it began <laughs> yeah well <laughs> It's done a lot of disreputable things too. Yeah. Like even if you there's there's not a ton of like the the most evidence to suggest that there is foreign interference is Vivian Krause's work, which isn't really substantiated by other people in the field, like energy experts. But um, even if you believe it, 
like even if you believe there is potential for foreign interference in the energy sector and like misinformation to co like coming at Alberta, um, the the Canadian Energy Center has taken aim at very reputable institutions like societal institutions that shouldn't have it tried the to like New save the New York Times. Yeah, oh that's the most famous one because they had to apologize for that one afterwards. That's a delete <laughs> comments about it where they basically said the New York Times were spreading lies. And I just, it, I, in my personal opinion, it's a waste of money. It's, it's yeah. really frustrating. Um, but to be, to be fair, like to like, to give the side of the argument that the Kenny government is trying to make is they, they're basing a lot of its work on Vivian Krauss, who says there might be foreign interference from American governments. And their belief is that America is very dependent on Alberta oil, but it's very clear from statistics that reliance is declining. It's, yeah, I'm really not sure where Keystone XL goes from here, simply because of the fact that it doesn't seem as beneficial for the Americans as it does for Canadians. Um, the mm. only thing, and I will say, it's not necessarily a, a done deal. Um, the only thing that might interfere is a lot of the states, like, around the border, um, like, like that have, like, labor components there. Um, labor segments support the building of Keystone XL because it will get jobs. So some people are mm -hmm. hoping that Biden will switch his position to try and hold on to that demographic of like voters. Yeah. Um, but I would question that personally. Like Obama was even against Keystone XL when he was president, and Obama, in policy wise, isn't going to be as liberal as Biden was. So I, yeah, personally, I don't see. A really, you actually don't think so? That's interesting. I, I, well, I think Obama, ideologically, I would say, yeah. is probably more liberal, but in terms of actual policies that they're going to implement during their administrations, like, if Biden sticks to his promises, which is obviously quite, like, what we'll have to see, honestly, but Biden's platform is a lot more left of center than Obama's was, mainly because of the influence of other Democrats in the race, so like yeah. Bernie Sanders, yeah. AOC, um, Elizabeth Warren, um, the whole climate plan is basically a lot of it's lifted from the Sunrise Movement or from Jay Inslee, who um, was a former governor. So yeah, yeah, that, that I think that's definitely like an, an interesting thing in terms of like looking forward because because yeah, there there you do see a lot of pressure for the Democrats or at least for some sections of Democrats to push Biden. I think a little further left than he historically has been because he's he's pretty near the, the middle. Um, I think that's that was pretty much the appeal of him. He this here's a white male who's kind of in the middle that we can use to <laughs> to win over moderate voters. Um, I think I think just uh, an important thing which might be worth bringing up in terms of the elections. I know obviously a lot of people um, are really happy to see Trump um, get out of office, but I was thinking, especially when when Mitch brought up the whole thing, his tweet of "I won this election by a lot." Obviously, he didn't, um, and obviously, he actually got less. He once again lost the popular vote, which is kind of building into a, a, a larger theme, which is more interesting of, of how the Republicans are making, um, have built a system almost around minority rule. Like I saw this interesting, uh, this interesting stat. I think I don't think a Republican president has won the popular vote in the last eight elections, um, and I think even when it comes to the Senate, in terms of how many people are represented by Republican senators, even though they control the Senate, it's the minority of Americans, um, which are um, represented by Republican senators. But I, I was thinking, like, I do think when you look at Trump's numbers, what do we make of the fact that in a lot of ways he did better this year than he did in 2016? Like, he did get a lot more votes. I think I, I had the number just a minute ago. I think it's 2016. Uh, 69 million, roughly, I believe. Or just just oh, over, 62 right? million, I think, yeah. Oh. No, I, I think it's 60. I thought it was 70. 
I think it's 69 million. Trump okay. Trump claimed he has 71. Oh no, it's 70 actually. No, oh no, are, are, are you talking about 2020? I mean in 2016. Oh, 2016. Yeah. No, well, yeah, I was yeah, talking yeah. about 2020. Yeah, that's what I'm... Yeah, no, like I, I think in 2016 he got about um 60. I'm getting the number right now. Yeah, about 62 million votes, and and this year, um, it's kind of gone. It went up to 70. Well, I'm on CNN right now, so 71 million. Um, and then when you look at his support among some demographics, I think a lot of people are surprised to see um, in this election, his support went up, I think, among among black women, uh, black men, Latino voters quite a bit, especially in Florida. Um, I think his support went, they, I think the only demographic where he lost support was white men, interestingly enough. Um, do we, ha- do we have any thoughts on that? M- Mitch, maybe, no, maybe you have a little more insight just because you're kind of deep in politics, but. Um, I mean, not like not a ton deeper other than that, mm-hmm. that, like the exit polls have reflected that. I mean, for myself, the most disappointing one is the queer community, like the LGBTQ community. Um, the exit polls, according to the New York Times, um, Trump more than doubled his support amongst them, which is the largest increase um, in support mm-hmm. of Trump, which is quite, um, as a member of the queer community, I'm quite disappointed to see that. Um, but I, I, I don't know what to make of that, to be honest. I think that Trump's support is so racially based it's so, and like so identity based. It's very weird to see marginalized communities come out and support him more. But I, I think the long-term repercussion of Trump having more support is the fact that the GOP isn't going to shy away from the kind of tactics that Trump used. Like yeah. um, the fact that Trump was still able to get 70, it's, it's 71 million, you were saying, correct now? 71 million, yeah. Total, yeah. Um, the fact that he was able to get 71 million votes, which, by the way, would still, the only person that's gotten more votes in the history of American presidential elections will be Biden. Like, that's yeah. still the second most, second highest vote count for any, like, any candidate. Um, it shows that there's a constituency in the states that believe that over the past four years, Trump behavior is vindicated, that his sort of um, policies that did harm marginalized communities are acceptable. So I think the long-term repercussion of that is that you're going to see a lot less Republicans that look like Mitt Romney or John McCain. I think you're going to see a lot more that look like Donald Trump or um, Lindsey Graham or um, like, this isn't an American politician, but like Marie Le Pen, like, or Boris Johnson. I, I think you're going to see a lot more people come out like that in the GOP rather than someone coming out and taking a principled conservative stance like John McCain. Yeah. Speaking of voting, like, super quickly, I think Mitch, that... Pia, you're general... kind of quiet. Do you want to get a little closer to the mic? Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah. So, uh, some general consensus that a lot of people... Um, I know y'all have... And listeners, you've probably heard this as well. Um, Georgia flipping. So, Georgia going to Democrats. Uh, a lot of that was very much credited to Stacey Abrams, who uh, actually lost her own race, but turned to... Um, Mar- uh, to really equip uh, marginalized voters to register in Georgia, as well as uh, if someone could refresh me, I'm pretty sure um, was a huge advocate for automatic registration for a lot of people. And um, Black activists all over America helped win back like the the blue wall. So that was Michigan, um, as well as Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. So uh, we talked about how Black voters seem to come out for Trump more this year, but um, overall, there's a huge consensus that, you know, it, it was Black activists that really um, came out and uh, advocated for uh, more minorities, essentially, to vote as well as just, like, obviously a lot more Black people to vote. So I was wondering what, um, like, 
Kadra, Tom, what your guys' thoughts on that was maybe, um, because I feel like it's, it's like interesting to know that the black vote increased for Trump, but also like the, the other side of the coin. So I don't know if anyone wanted to comment on that. I mean, I'm not surprised that there's been an increase in like black support for Trump because he literally spent his four years like polarizing the country. So mm. I think that's why we see an increase in like all minorities voting for him because it's very much you're either with Trump or you're against Trump, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think that like um, all the work done by like black activists and like Stacey Abrams and stuff is why Georgia was flipped blue because Georgia is a historic red state. But um, yeah, it was. That's. I think that like Biden owes a lot of of his um, success in this campaign to black women so yeah definitely <laughs> i think I, I i saw it was really good i think it was the tweet about georgia just to quickly touch on that where it was like georgia isn't a red state it's a voter suppressed state mm -hmm. and, and that was interesting to think about i remember even i looked up an article that i read a few weeks ago i think in counties where um the population was 90 percent white or more the average wait time to vote was around nine minutes and then if the county was 90 percent non-white or more the average wait time mm. was around 51 minutes and so like that's uh, i don't know i think that's that's probably something that, to think about i think especially with a lot of these states which we kind of associate with you know one color or another like i kind of asking what's really mm. going on there i know there's a lot of that going on in florida um but i don't know i think kind of going to the question of, of of why trump's kind of saw more support among minorities i think sometimes and i was thinking about this i think sometimes we just there's very fragmented narratives especially in in the realm of politics and maybe we're not always aware of like what other people are hearing. Like, I think a really good example is like when you see Trump getting all this support among Hispanic voters in Florida. I remember when I first saw that, I was like, what, why, why is that happening? And then you find out a lot of those voters are Cuban and Venezuelan. And so then when, when they hear Trump talking about like, oh, Bernie Sanders is a socialist, um, AOC is a socialist, they immediately think back to the socialist regimes that they literally fled. And, and it's like, yo, I don't want to see that coming here to this country which is supposedly my safe haven and now you're seeing like more and more support for someone like trump um among a demographic you wouldn't really expect but I, like i don't know if we're always aware of those of those narratives and i think honestly like not not to speak too long on it but i think there's even maybe a little bit of criticism which there is to be like leveled towards um like left-wing parties and, and maybe even the democrats in that in that sense of kind of the approaches they've taken um i know uh i I was listening to an interesting podcast a while ago, talk, kind of talking about Brexit and why a lot of these counties, which had always voted Labour, like for decades, all of a sudden in the last UK election flipped to Conservative. And like when you talk to people there, they were like, they felt as though the, the, the Labour Party had kind of moved away from that Labour base of like, this is a Labour movement. And it kind of just, I guess, kind of got like hijacked by academics. And I feel as though we, you kind of see that happening um, in the states and, and even in Canada. You look at these states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, that had always been blue states like for a really long time until, until Trump wins them in 2016. And then you kind of look at, the, I don't know, when, when I look at the Democratic Party, I kind of see a party which, you know, has kind of allowed academics to handle the rhetoric. And then in terms of policy appears to, to appeals to the elite and in the middle and kind of lost in that is kind of working class people, a lot of whom are black, a lot of whom are Latino, a lot of whom are, are, are whatever identity. 
and I think if you don't engage with them, if you only try to engage with someone as a black person and maybe not as a middle-class worker who lost their job, the guy who does do that to some extent is going to do better. I, I, I feel like that, but I don't know. It's complicated, obviously. Yeah. And honestly, there's like that fragmentation and to really drive that home, like so many of the progressives and the people who want to bring the democratic party to the 21st century are like, for example, the squad, like Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, these are the folks that are quite radical in wanting to progress the party. And um, I think that the Democrats have made it really clear that um, like a lot of them, like, for example, like John Kasich, who didn't even win uh, his, his, um, his election in Ohio, blamed progressive Democrats and, by extension, really blamed a lot of people of color and you know black activists for wanting to change the party like and what it does for the better and i think that that sort of inherent like villainization of progressives like within the democratic party really alienates a lot of people i definitely know of a lot of people who uh feel as though or felt as though um like voting for joe biden was a good thing in the sense that it ousted Trump, but they felt as like, they feel as though um, like there's this huge sentiment that it they weren't voting for Biden because they like Biden. Yeah. They're not voting for Biden because they like the Democratic Party. They did it because they had to, almost like yeah. a reductive measure, like a harm reductive measure. But, you know, the Democratic Party really needs to step up and like listen to people of color, you know, but listen, listen to Black people, listen to Native Americans and like work on these relationships because I don't know, Trump 2024, uh, that could be a thing. Oh. And just thinking about that is really scary. Um, so yeah, I guess that's my two cents on that, really. 100%, well, and I, yeah, I, I, I think there's something to be really said about the fact that almost all political parties um, have lost touch, I think, with like the working class voters that they claim to consist, that both parties claim to consistently try and represent. Yeah. Um, I, I think, yeah, I just think there's something to be really, really to be said there. I mean, I don't know if, yeah, I, I personally really like um, Alexander Acosta-Cortez, but I don't know if it's necessarily, I don't think it's one person that can solve it. Um, I don't think it's, I don't know if solutions are going to be found on either faction of the Democratic Party, as much as I think of going out and actually engaging in those people. Like, you know, I think the reason that um, activists of color were able to have so much success in Michigan and Wisconsin is because they went out to communities the Democrats haven't talked to for generations, like including like a lot of people from either faction of the party. Like I identify more with progressives, but I also have to be honest, you know, like progressives have also not always been the best at doing outreach to grassroots supporters in those states. Um, and I, 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 yeah, I just think there's personally something to be said about the fact that people actually went out and got that done and that should be rewarded. Like, I'm going to be really disappointed if I actually don't see some acknowledgement of Stacey Abrams by the Joe Biden administration in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. um, if I don't see some acknowledgement of the fact that Arizona flipped, um, which some of it, yes, mm -hmm. is due to, like, moderates. And, like, mm -hmm. I wouldn't discount the fact that Trump literally crapped all over John McCain, who is, like, one of Arizona's, yeah. like, national, like, statewide heroes. But... A lot of that work was also done by Latinx organizers in that state. So I, you know, I think there's something to be said about that. But yeah, I think broadly speaking, there'd be more benefit to paying attention to working class voters. Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of marginalized groups, like, you know, be it black people or 
or, or Latinos or, or like you said, like Native Americans in, in Arizona who kind of delivered this win to Joe Biden. And then when you kind of look at what Joe Biden represents, like, frankly, you know, there's a reason why the Democrats were so bent on getting this, you know, this old white guy as the leader, <laughs> um, because they knew it would appeal. It, it, like, let's be honest, Joe Biden was an appeal to white voters. That's what it was fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's going to be interesting the next, you know, four years or, or however long to see if if those groups, which kind of um, launched Joe Biden into the presidency, if their contributions are acknowledged, be it in like policy or actually appealing to them rather than kind of, you know, just taking them for granted, like taking for granted that you're always going to get the black vote, you're always going to get the Hispanic vote. Um, yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be something to keep an eye on. Um, I imagine we might talk about the election again, considering there's how many days till the inauguration, like 70 or um, like something like that. It's, it'll be January 20th. Yeah, January 20th. Uh, 2024, um, 2021, yeah. not 2021. Yeah, <laughs> at, at, at the time of recording, Donald Trump hasn't, um conceded so who knows what's going to happen in the next couple months um court cases have already begun uh so we're going to see what that looks like okay i guess kind of moving to um this is i guess kind of a heavier uh headline um so today uh, it is november 2nd uh news came out um jeopardy actually yeah jeopardy uh they announced that alex trebek uh longtime host he had passed away today um, he was 80 years old of, of pancreatic cancer. Um, anyone who doesn't know, Jeopardy is a is a long running uh, quiz show, um, kind of famous for their question answer format. Um, so Alex Trebek, he he's been the host since 1984. Like, damn, that's long. Um, but he announced his uh, pancreatic cancer diagnosis in 2019 uh, that he'd stage four um, pancreatic cancer. Um, he's obviously a Canadian, a beloved Canadian. Um, uh, yeah, so obviously that's, that's some sad news that came out of Jeopardy today. Um, Mitch, I know you said you have <laughs> next to no understanding of who Alex Trebek is. Um, I, I, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry to put you on. I will, I will say I know who Alex Trebek is, but I, I, I didn't watch Jeopardy. I'm not going to lie. I've never seen a full episode. Um, I'm, I'm a hashtag big Canadian. Um, yeah. but, um, I will say I know who Alex Trebek is solely though, because like he was taken to such like good representation of our country on tv like he was a really really like i i have not watched a full episode but i've seen a lot of clips of him on jeopardy and just like i think in his temperament i think the understanding is that he really embodies i think like what people what we like what our country wants people to see canada as even if that's not necessarily the reality um alex (laughs) trebek was the ideal yeah. Yeah. I feel like seeing as we're all in our 20s here, we're kind of uh, about 40 years outside of the Jeopardy demographic. Um, but how about Kadra and P? Do you guys, do you guys, did you guys watch it at all? Have, I watched a little bit of Jeopardy. Like I remember I used to always be proud when I got even like one answer because 99% of it went over my head. The celebrity episodes, that'd be pretty good because I'm about as smart as a celebrity, but um, <laughs> <laughs> how about the rest of you? Do you guys have any, um, Memories of Jeopardy. Um, I know I I watch it like periodically. Like I'm not a committed fan, but the last time I like watched it, watched it, I think was at the beginning, maybe a few months into quarantine when I thought I had coronavirus and I was so sick. That's that's how you wanted to end your life. Um, (laughs) Watching Jeopardy on your desk. Yeah, and I was like. Unconsolable, but I was like, I'll just turn on Jeopardy, I guess. That's so funny. And I watched that. It made me feel a lot better. It made me feel dumb, mm-hmm. but I felt also smart because I was like, I'm learning facts, you know? But my favorite 
like Alex Trebek thing is like when he when they did rappers the episode where they did rappers mm. and he's just reading <laughs> lyrics and he was like mad city like and it's so funny because he's just reading it in his like cadence his like classic you know Alex Trebek cadence and it's just like oh so funny he's reading like it's an encyclopedia but it's <laughs> <laughs> he's like trap city <laughs> oh, no, he, the moment he goes he goes panda 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 yeah panda, 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 panda. <laughs> that's so cute uh... <laughs> so as for me i grew up on jeopardy i actually grew Whoa. up in the states and it was always on like on sunday evenings so with dinner we would watch jeopardy all the time and I remember really desperately wanting to be one of those Jeopardy kids, except I feel like you have to like have an IQ of over whatever IQ I have. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's that's actually the the standard. <laughs> Are you smarter than Pia? You can come on the show. <laughs> yeah, like honestly, that us. No, for real. Like now, Tom, that was a read. Um, um, <laughs> Listen, uh, it, uh, the, the words were right on the page. He's right. Regardless, <laughs> I, I think I think that what Alex Trebek really encapsulated to me as a child, not even knowing he was Canadian until I moved to Canada, my family, but he is like Canada's cool grandpa, or he was Canada's cool grandpa. Like, you want Alex Trebek to, like, make you banana pancakes, like, on a Saturday morning, and you watch, like, you know, some... Mitchell (laughs) Mitchell just tilted his head, just like, hmm? Listeners, I think he's he's taking this in a way that I did not intend. I meant, like, you're with your grandpa and your cousins. Oh, no, no, I... I, 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 I know what you mean. I just didn't. I just didn't know that grandpa's cooked banana pancakes. I was yeah, just me too. That yeah. I, I wasn't thinking of it in. A, I think the way you're implying. <laughs> I don't know, Mitch. You made a face, but regardless, Although Alex. Honestly, if Alex Trebek wanted to be a be something, I think there's there's a there's yeah. Okay, he's a little bit of a silver fox. Honestly, I think that he was a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like. So whatever way you want to interpret that, you want Alex Trebek to be making you banana pancakes at like like on a for, for brunch on a Sunday like that's what you want and that's what he really encapsulated to me uh in whatever way you want to interpret that <laughs> and just, I just imagine um, like a little eight-year-old Pia like oh, I want that man to make <laughs> pancakes <laughs> yes. honestly with that deep with that deep voice he was just like he's like that announcer voice he's like banana pancakes like i i would i would learn um i would look for that i would what is definitely banana pancakes? <laughs> definitely my favorite memory of him would probably be um and listeners definitely google this I, I don't know what to type in on google but there's an episode where um he had one of the guests they do this little thing like in the middle of the show where they kind of introduce the guests so he interviews them really quickly and sees what they're about and this one lady she talks about how uh, she's into nerdcore hip-hop <laughs> um please, <laughs> please like i think this was this is either last year or a couple years ago. And it was just very clear that, you know, Alex Trebek, he can't be fired at this point. He doesn't care what he says. Um, so yeah, she's just, she's describing, she's into nerdcore hip hop. And Alex Trebek, he's like, um, uh, what is that? And she's like, oh, you know, um, so it's, it's a style of hip hop uh, just done by geeky people, you know, where we talk about the things we love, like if it's like math or Star Trek, um, you know, uh, trouble finding romantic partners. And then Alex Trebek just pauses and he's like, so losers, you're losers. <laughs> and that's what I call a read. <laughs> the voice of the nation, Alex Trebek. 
honestly <laughs> honestly and um, this is a yeah it's uh, like you like it's one of those he's he's like tom hanks you know everybody likes alex trebek like good dude has been doing this forever and just yeah it, it's sad to know that he won't be around anymore but yeah he has left like a really like quite mm. awesome legacy whether he's going panda 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 or if he's you know <laughs> doing his uh actual gig but yeah shout out do to alex trebek this is just a good question do you do we feel as though how would you feel if they replaced him or do you feel as though this is the end of jeopardy oh my goodness okay actually so bad but the other day we were talking about like how since trump lost the election what is alec baldwin gonna do now and i made a joke to my roommate alec baldwin Baldwin will punch someone in the face okay but anyway i said i said as a joke haha i guess maybe like host jeopardy because i was making an alex trebek joke and then alex trebek died today and i was like what the heck you caused my roommates like you literally manifested this like i swear to god i didn't yeah but not saying you're the cause of of alex trebek's death but i am saying alex trebek overcame cancer once before so Little suspect that uh, this time yeah. Pia's manifesting. I, okay. I can't imagine Alec Baldwin hosting Jeopardy. They'd probably have to like move it to midnight and make it 18 a. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> my pick, my, you know, I, I, I actually know who my pick would be though. Yeah. Imagine this Jeopardy hosted by Eric Andre. Who is that? No. Oh, I would live. That would actually be good you too. <laughs> <laughs> they would get through like two questions <laughs> the entire night. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Kadra, if you don't know who that is, I would really highly recommend watching the Eric Andre show. Oh, very- oh that guy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no. He's the guy that like went outside the White House and was like, let me in. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Iconic. He's definitely like on the Mount Rushmore of like the weirdest people on the internet. Uh, yeah. For sure. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Like I I remember I used to watch um Prices Right a lot when I was a kid. I guess that was my version of P.S. Jeopardy was Muse Price is Right. I remember when Bob Barker... Is Bob Barker dead? No, man. What? He's not. Is he? Is he? he? I know he doesn't host the show. I he stopped Google. hosting a while ago. It was um, that guy from uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? I forget his name. Yeah, no, he's he's alive. Oh, okay. Well, old. I guess I guess he retired. He's alive and kicking. But I remember like when Bob Barker left, I was like, I don't know if you can keep making the show. But then, uh, who's that other guy? He he came in. Um, the guy from Whose Line Is It Anyway? He came in and... and uh, um it worked so i don't know maybe maybe there's a chance of, oh drew carey that was the name so maybe there's a oh, chance yeah, yeah. Of, of jeopardy getting a new host i don't i don't know if there's much of a market for a show like jeopardy anymore like i don't know if there's a reason no jeopardy it, is huge but, like how many classrooms yeah. classroom jeopardy man like <laughs> yeah but there's a difference between playing well, classroom jeopardy. I know how to play jeopardy that's like saying oh there's a market for hangman on primetime tv <laughs> Like, no, 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 like, <laughs> Jeopardy is, like, it's a huge thing in the sense that, remember, like, there's some people who make millions upon millions upon millions of dollars just playing Jeopardy, and it's just, like, it's so cool to see how smart some people are. Yeah. Yeah, like, mm. I don't know. How, okay, I have a question. How do you even train to be on Jeopardy? No, it's just you, Like, how do you acquire this knowledge? Just, yeah. But how do you acquire this knowledge? You sit and you just, you, you live. You just live life, yeah, read I a mean, lot. Yeah, read a lot. I don't even read books anymore, so. 
Count me out. Does audible.com count as reading? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's information entering your head. <laughs> nice. Uh, I feel like we should go. Yeah. We had Alex Trebek, old white man. So we should go all the way to the other side and choose Wendy Williams. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my God. I don't know. She's the only black woman I can think of. Wendy Williams would just be there. And Wendy Williams would be like, let me tell you. Let me, let me tell <laughs> you. She'd be like... I don't even know, like, what's... Oh, I would live to actually see Wendy Williams do the rap do the rap episode of that. Did you guys see her on Mass Singer? No. no. Oh, my God. No. Does what? Actually, oh, oh my God. My this God. is who should host Jeopardy. Not not being serious listeners as a heads up. But um, she was on Mass, Mass Singer, too. And all she does nowadays is reality TV. Uh, Sarah Palin? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no one wants to watch Sarah Palin every week. <laughs> like Sarah five days Palin a week of Sarah Palin. So, she'd be so crazy. It would be probably wildly. Like, if she could just yeah. do like just an Alaskan only one where all she does is less trivia about Alaska, I could see her doing that. The question would be, what can I see from my kitchen window? Oh. <laughs> what is what is Russia? What is Russia? <laughs> <laughs> ding ding ding. <laughs> Real. Oh, I feel so bad that. for her. <laughs> I don't. Um, yeah, well, yeah. I feel I so. Sarah Palin. You don't feel bad for her? No, because she brought this on herself. I, she like. I feel like, but when she was, when she was, um, it was McCain's vice president candidate, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. They like tore apart because, like, some of it was very warranted, but some of it was just because she was a woman, and that, it was like pretty bad. That's true. I will say. Although I will say also, if any of you have ever seen Sarah Palin's interview with Katie Couric, it's one of the three interviews she did when she was announced as VP. It was, it was like watching a train derail in slow motion. It was okay. so bad. They okay. asked. Her okay, that. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, so that was a question? Could Sarah Palin host Jeopardy? Were we seriously? Yeah. I, well, no, not seriously. I'll, I I know, trust me, when I, I'm going to go on a limb and say if Sarah Palin's on the Masked Singer, God knows she has time to host Jeopardy, but I, I would not bring her back. Yeah, so I, I think just we went pretty far off topic, but... Um... Um, yeah, we're obviously it's, it's sad to see uh, Alex Reg passing away. Like Pia said, um, mm-hmm. just a real he left a real legacy. Um, I think in Canada and the U.S. He definitely was one of those people who I think when you found out like oh he's Canadian like you you always knew about him before then you find out he's Canadian it maybe you feel a little bit of national pride uh, to know yeah. there's someone like that doing things like that on on international stage. So uh, yeah, obviously our, our deepest condolences to to him and his family. Um, who knows what Jeopardy's gonna uh, gonna do going forward I, I don't imagine it'll be the same though um mm. but kind of moving on to a more local story uh talked about the election and, and kind of things happening in entertainment mitchell you had a story about um uh some temporary homeless shelters uh being set up in the city or not being set up in the city uh do you want to elaborate on that a little more yeah 100 percent. so there's been a lot of um high stakes around homelessness in the city recently uh, there's been multiple homeless camps set up, most notably Camp Pekawiwin, um, right outside uh, that baseball field downtown. Remax Field. Uh, thank you. I thought it was Remax, but I was so scared to say it. Um, <laughs> I don't know sports, listeners. Um, but uh, there's been a lot of rising tensions over it. So as a result, um, the city's setting up some temporary homeless shelters. And so they've made a temporary homeless shelter on the south side, which honestly has been needed for a long time because a lot of the res- like resources that exist for vulnerable populations in the city 
all exist either downtown or on the north side. Um, yeah. And the news that I'm bringing to you listeners is that uh, Ritchie residents have actually filed an appeal against setting up a temporary homeless shelter in their neighborhood. Uh, and the reason I think this is newsworthy is because I think that there is this, like, it just gets me a lot as someone that, like, has, like, known homeless people, um, like, like, and tried to give support to homeless people before. Um, I, it gets me really badly because I think there's this really big narrative that, like, people are all for homeless supports. And then as soon as it's, like, anything touches their neighborhood, there's this, like, societal notion that yeah. I'm just going to be rampant and, like, that's going to attract all these people that just were never there before. And that's just not true, but it especially annoyed me in the Ritchie community because um, Ritchie as a community in Edmonton is like a very urban, upstart, like young, chic community that also really does pride itself on being a bit more progressive. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's extremely frustrating to me to see people that are basically the bohemian bourgeoisie to be like, come out here and basically tell like basically appeal a decision to get a temporary homeless shelter in their neighborhood and then also try and consistently tout off how progressive they are. I'm just a little frustrated with the situation personally. Yeah. I think even, even that point you made of, of people having, I guess that aversion to like these supports being in their community, like people being like, I'm, I'm also, I, I support, you know, low income housing. I support um, all these different supports for like homeless people or people living in low income until it comes to their area. Like, I know even for me personally, um, my neighborhood is kind of like a suburban area. They even, I remember when they wanted to build a no frills, which is a grocery store. Um, but obviously it's, it's kind of associated more with like, I guess, cheaper groceries. People got really mad about that because like, we don't want people who want cheaper groceries <laughs> um, coming to our neighborhood. Um, but I, I think it's like, like what Mitchell's saying. I think even that notion is super powerful. Because even if there yeah, there aren't increases in crime or anything like that in the, in the Richie area, I think just having that in your community, people always complain about things like, oh, it's going to drop my property value. And in a way it will because people just have that notion in their heads so when they hear that, oh, this house is right next door to a temporary homeless shelter. Even if there isn't like a greater risk, people just have this like, um, I guess what the word is, like this prejudice in their minds. Uh, it's difficult. It's, it's definitely a, 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 a difficult situation. Um, yeah definitely well and i mean to be fair to richie like the richie like the richie um neighborhood association or like community league hasn't taken a formal side on it um Mm -hmm. and it looks as though they've um they've done like sessions to try and hear feedback from community stakeholders um but honestly i'm still i am still personally annoyed i'm not annoyed at richie is like the people that run the community i'm just very annoyed that residents in that neighborhood or in any neighborhood honestly that's on the south side are honestly acting as though homelessness isn't something that affects their lives um or that they're so like disassociated from like you know it gets me because homelessness is a problem in the city and has been for a really long time and it seems that there's just this um passivity on the south side of the city to actually acknowledge that there are homeless people that live on the south side there are people that struggle with addictions on the south side um and there seems to be like a lack of support from them but it just really gets me in richie specifically because richie is like in my opinion a really great neighborhood i i love richie i go to richie market fairly often um pre-covid not during covid so i don't want to die um but i it gets me that it's a neighborhood that is so often seen as progressive and that like I have friends mm-hmm. that are really proud to live there because it's progressive. 
that there's just residents there that just are acting as though vulnerable populations don't need support in their community. Um, I know that's not the opinion of everyone in Richie, but it, it does get me. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's like when you kind of ask to practice what you preach, it gets things get things get hairy. Um, is this is this the shelters being set up by the city, or is it by a private organization? Um, it's help. The city's helping with it, but it'll be run by the mustard seed. Uh, okay. So the city's helping establish it, but yeah, the mustard seed is behind it. Um, and as as um, like the, the Richie is trying to adapt to, like I, I am giving, I do want to give credit to the community league that like I think is genuinely trying to hear all sides. But um, it still it still gets me that there's still people out there that just I think are appealing it solely on the fact that they have this notion that yeah, this coming into their community is going to like deeply affect Richie when vulnerable populations already exist in Richie. If if people didn't exist there, the city, I don't think, would have chosen it as a site to set up a temporary homeless shelter, or at least the mustard seed wouldn't have. Like, and it's not far from the youth emergency shelter also. It's like a few blocks mm. away. Like, it's it's not a really outlandish notion to me. But yeah, if, if other... Sorry, I have to burp there, listeners. That's my bad. Um, <laughs> that's really embarrassing. Um, but if other people want to jump in on this point, I'd be curious to hear other people's thoughts on this. Um, yeah, so... Uh... I think what's really interesting about this particular story is I agree broadly like that it's pretty like the the whole idea that NIMBY so not in my backyard where it's like I think a lot of folks are okay with and a lot of people do do things like for example buy those uh, kits at the end of Safeway or Superstore to give to like the food bank or people are comfortable giving money around Christmas time when it talks like those easy sorts of ways of showing support for houseless folks or homeless folks and just like other communities but when it gets to the hard stuff like hey i think we need to build a shelter or some sort of uh, institution where these people can be where people can be looked after in a more substantive and like full way um in our neighborhoods that's when people get all up in arms about it which is really unfortunate i think part of the reason why in this specific instance i'm very interested by richie's response to this is um i think one of the big concerns that some of the folks had was the mustard seed is like a religious organization and they have a zero tolerance policy. So what that means is they do not admit uh, folks who are under the influence of drugs and the same goes for hope mission for any of their uh, temporary uh, overnight shelters. And the problem with that is so many community members use drugs, not because they necessarily want to, or even if they want to, and those folks deserve to have supports and help as well. So I think that was part of the reason why Richie's league is a little bit like there's obviously a lot of splintering stuff. I just given that, I just wish that, you know, Don Iverson, you know, the time is ticking, man. We need to come up with more supports for people where they're at. And I think that that's kind of like what's really important, I guess, in the story ultimately is that like how do we support homeless people how do we support marginalized people like where they're at like even if they're using drugs even if like they're not necessarily perfect all these people still deserve like a safe place to sleep when it's minus 30 or minus 40 outside like dead ass like i don't know i don't have the answers it's just what is the best way to approach these sorts of things uh i don't think richie's doing the worst i don't think they're doing the best but it's really interesting reflection on like not in my backyard like we do the easy activism we do the stuff like giving money all the time to charities but like 
when it comes to <laughs> having these people in our like you know homeless people in our communities like how do we address this in a more meaningful way like honestly i guess that's what i'm taking away from this all 100 percent. well and i i think that's like a big thing yeah because i think that even even if Richie did accept this, I like it's still at the end of the day a temporary housing shelter mm-hmm. that's contingent on funding that isn't going to be around forever. Um, yeah. It, like at the end of the day, the South Side does probably need, not probably, the South Side does need some sort of permanent supports for vulnerable populations, um, especially ones that face addiction. And I, I, it just for me is just really frustrating to watch. Um, watch just the hesitancy to that from. Um, a lot of communities on the south side, Richie, some some of these Richie residents are only a segment of that, but it just, yeah, it just really kicks it home for me, like, especially what P was saying about, like, certain organizations that only let certain people in, like, I mean, I'm going to also be honest and say the provincial government um, is currently mm-hmm. being very selective about who they give money to, um, to support homeless initiatives, like, I've seen Premier Kenny quite often is happy to come and take photos and do photo ops and give money to the Hope Mission, um or the mustard seed that yeah both are religious and then yeah as soon as um other other supports that exist such as um the Bissell center uh are like really concerned that they're gonna have their safe injection site shut down so it's like it's it's extremely uh frustrating um not the Bissell center that's why boyle street that's my bad i was just gonna add that like ironically november is like City of Edmonton declared YEG Housing Month, where mm-hmm. they're supposed to like pay attention to like and like so they have like, lunch and learns right now that are happening. But it's just it's just super ironic when we have like the whole can't pick away one thing and like Don Iverson is not doing anything and they're still sending out emails and press releases about housing, <laughs> like how it's Housing Month, but we don't have any solutions yet happening. I don't know, it's just ironic to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think this, this situation probably it highlights like the difference between, um, I guess, like being willing to like posture and, and, and give the appearance that you care about something and then obviously actually doing it. I think Pia, you brought up a good point, the whole NIMBY aspect. Um, yeah, or, or even just things like, like, like declaring this the housing month um, while you have situations like this going on. Um, obviously, uh, you know, house, homelessness, house, houselessness has been a big theme this year with the camp pick we went. Um, um, I, if we have any updates on the, on that Richie story, on the Richie story, um, I'm sure we'll, we'll update us uh, on future episodes of the podcast. Uh, but I think right now would be a good time to hop into campus news. Um, I think, uh, like I said before, this is a student, we do work for student run magazine. So it's always good to have at least a little bit, uh, a little section of the show dedicated to kind of talking about things happening at the U of A. Um, this week, our news editor slash queen, um, Pia, I hey, mean, not Pia, queen. sorry, Kadra. Kadra, <laughs> you are, so uh, you want to fill us in on some things that are happening uh, at the U of A, maybe people should be aware of. Let us know. Yeah, I got y'all. I should know it's my jobs. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I mean, to be honest, there's a lot happening at the university right now, which is mm-hmm. super ironic that... We have so many great things happening in a, in a, in the time where we're getting cut so much, but yeah. um, we had like three profs named um, top 40, top 40 under 40 for the city. We just got a donation from a U of A alum for a new library. So like, those are great things. <laughs> That's ironic. 
ironic as we had to close down two libraries yeah. <laughs> because of budget cuts. Uh, you can read the reporting on the gateway.ca, that's gtwy.ca, all about the Coots library closure as well as uh, other library closures. You can read it all online. Anyway, continue. Yeah. <laughs> But something that I want to focus on is our staff uh, unions. They have been like kicking butt in advocacy for the university. And I just wanted to highlight some of the stuff they've been doing. So I think a lot of us who are in Edmonton know that. I guess it was last week, Joe. What was it mm -hmm. on the. Yeah, last week. Yeah, was it on a Friday? Tuesday? Tuesday last Tuesday? week. Monday or Tuesday. Yeah, early last week. Yeah, so last week we um, we had a healthcare workers rally because the government is planning on cutting 11,000 healthcare jobs. And so we had a legal, this time legal, rally uh, in protest of that. And both of our staff's associations, so that's NASA, the non-academic staff association, and then our academic staff association at the U of A, both um, showed up in solidarity. Um, and, you know, encourage university members to also show up in solidarity. And so I just wanted to pull two quotes from the article that our wonderful staff reporter, Rachel, wrote. Shouts out to Rachel. Yes, Rachel's the best. News um, princess. Covering, <laughs> she's our <laughs> news princess. <laughs> um, covering the strike. So um, from the president of the um, non-academic staff association, Elizabeth Johansson, she said that NASA's hope is that many people will speak up about how important those things are to them as well. When NASA goes out to support workers in healthcare, we're showing support for our positive vision of the future and support for all of the things that our province needs to work towards building. And then our president of the academic staff association said that Seeing how a group of healthcare workers can mobilize and make an impact and get people on their side and actually successfully push back against the garbage is really important. I think it helps build our sense of what's possible for it. And so I think it's just like the what's the name of that person? The uh, oh, right. sorry. <clears throat> no problem. Uh Ricardo Acuna um, oh, cool, cool. is the president of our academic associ staff association. But I don't know, I just think it's really interesting, like that our staff associations are so vocal against the cuts from the government. Um, like last week, our academic, our, sorry, our non-academic staff association also attended a, a press conference from the Alberta Federation of Labor um, in support of their Stand Up to Kenny campaign that was just launched, which almost has like 20,000 signatures, which is crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. So this campaign, for those of you who don't know, is just, it's a campaign really like Alberta citizens to fight against the cuts of Kenny to avoid us from becoming, to avoid Alberta from becoming what they call Trump's America. That's the words of the campaign. Trump's candidate, you mean? Yeah. So... Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just think it's it's interesting because we don't see anything from university administration. Um, and I understand that there needs to be a sense of like cooperation, you know, and like respect between the university and the government because they work closely. But mm -hmm. I've been to a few press for conferences where it's like more than that. It's like friendly to them. They're laughing and making jokes while our unions are out here striking. And so... You know, what are your guys' perspective on, you know, the activeness of our unions and the quietness from administration? I think I think just that dynamic you, you described right there kind of just shows you, like, who's getting cut and who's not, like, who these cuts are impacting. Because, um, yeah, if, if, if you're not, if your position isn't in, in mortal danger, 
Um, I think you're more likely to be chummier with the people doing the cuts than obviously in the case of our non-academic staff and academic staff. Like these are kinds of people who are kind of facing the ax um, with some of these cuts. And I, I, can, I can understand why um, they're being a lot more vocal. Mitch, you seem to want to hop in. Yeah, I was I was just reacting because I thought yeah. that was a spicy take. Uh, I I'm very I have a lot of facial reactions, listeners. Um, yeah, uh, you guys are missing out. There's a whole other show, <laughs> which is just Mitch's Mitch's, Mitch's facial reactions, specifically his <laughs> eyebrows too, like that yeah. ass. <laughs> Mitch's eyebrows are double jointed. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna be my bio now, Tom. I'm letting you know. Um, Damn. Gateway bio. Um, can we is that your brand now, Mitchell? Eyebrows double jointed. Yes. Um, always. Um, um, uh, no, but on this note, I, I think I have two things to say about this, which is that um, a I think the silence by the university administration is honestly so sad to see. I think it's really frustrating because I think my idea of what a university administration should be doing is standing up for post-secondary education and ensuring that they're standing up for students, professors, and just research generally. And I just personally, from the actions of administration, I don't, it, it would appear that they don't think that's the same thing as, as Kadra elegantly put. There's been press conferences where they're literally laughing beside each other. And I think the most telling response actually, um, to the credit of the student, Un, like the student union council um, was when um, a student union council counselor Talia Dixon asked kind of why um, asked the U of A president Bill Flanagan why they weren't get, trying to prevent cuts from happening ahead of time like if, mm. if why weren't they advocating to try and reduce cuts rather than just responding to cuts and President Flanagan essentially said that he wants to show that the U of A is like responsive and like knows how to deal with cuts. And that's like how he's gonna build up a repertoire with the government. Um, and that's just such a disappointing response, to be honest. I don't think a university administration should have to show that they can do more with less. If anything, we should be able to show that if you gave us more, there's even more stuff that the university could contribute to the city and its province, which is very evident in the fact that we just won a Nobel prize. Like one of our- Literally. Literally just won a Nobel Prize. So it's extremely frustrating to me to see an administration that, in my personal opinion, appears to be a lot more complacent with cuts than they actually are with doing something about it and doing what, in my opinion, is their job description. Uh, my second take on it, though, is I, I love the fact that the academic union is stepping up and so is the non-academic staff union. I actually think they've been really vocal and really leading on this charge. Um, but something I would love for them to do is I'd love to see kind of a collective act of solidarity from them. Like I, I've been to a lot of meetings and town halls about the U of A Tomorrow Initiative, which I, I know we talked about in an earlier episode. Um, but I think there's a lot of things where professors talk about acts of solidarity and like academic staff talk about acts of solidarity, but I've yet to actually see an actual solid proposal on what an act of solidarity looks like. Like I would love it if the unions would organize a march, like a social distance march. Um, and I think my biggest inspiration comes from the University of Sydney, but their students are literally doing it so that in Sydney currently, in Sydney when I was reading about strikes that were happening there to austerity policies there, um, the maximum number of people you could have in a group was 20 people. And so they'd get groups of 19 people to go out and just inter like like strike in a, in different spots mm. around the university, and it actually was super disruptive. They had to call like police in, and it got attention. I'd love to see 
academic staff and non-academic staff unions looking at ways that professors can pull off similar things here. Yeah, I guess I have um, a couple takes too. Firstly, I am one of those people that believes that silence speaks volumes. And beyond like kind of like what Mitchell said, in my opinion, uh, complacency, it's not so much so complacency as it is like... <sighs> Complicity? complicity really seriously tom exactly what i was thinking like straight up like the evidence is there the proof is in the pudding the u of a is an excellent institution we produce excellence from like for example we reported on the eco car team uh, from the university of alberta engineering um uh, uh faculty where we are world leaders in engineering we are world leaders in um lots of computer science stuff and you know i'm gonna throw my people a bone too we have really strong arts culture we have really arts 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 arts. (laughs) we have some world-class professors i think of for example dr cressida hayes in political science i see uh uh listeners uh mitchell's gesticulating because i'm pretty sure that's uh, his Mm -hmm. thesis supervisor i was about to say she's my thesis supervisor so i have a conflict of interest but i Professor, Excuse yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but as someone who does not have a conflict of interest, uh, yeah. Dr. Hayes is fantastic. <laughs> Dr. Harvey Cron, another well-known sociologist, longitudinal study, the best one that's been done in North America so far really happened in Edmonton. I don't know if y'all knew that, but that was all Dr. Harvey Cron um, who did that here at the U of A. We have Dr. Sandra Busarius, another sociology prof, um, who is leading the charge on talking about extremism in Canadian prisons. Like, we have the cream of the crop. Like, we have a really diverse student population. We have, like, an enriched uh, community with a lot of international students. We contribute so much to the city. Like, all of it is there. Like, the proof that the University of Alberta deserves um, not only to be spared by us, like, from austerity, but, like, like, like just, like, what the U of A kind of represents broadly for post-secondary in Alberta, like we shouldn't have to prove ourselves because it just happens naturally, really. So for university administration to kind of like lean over and kind of like, you know, just let it happen is really frustrating. Um, Especially when, again, a lot of these administrators, and I won't say all of them, because there are members of the admin team who, or like the administrative staff who have had like, uh, their jobs have been affected by austerity, but the vast majority of the cuts that have happened to this university have been to people in the non-academic staff association, right? They've been to the people who we don't even think about that make the university literally function. It could be like a janitor who makes sure that, you know, Rutherford isn't disgusting when I go mm-hmm. study there. It's like the people who are making sure that the printers are working. It's those people who literally work behind the scenes to make sure that we can be a world-class institution and they have to be up there screaming their lungs out saying, hey, we deserve better, while administration kind of just lets it happen. As for academic stuff, I definitely agree with Mitchell that I wish there were more actions of solidarity, but I also think that, um, you know, there's a problem with the sense that I think a lot of academics may, might see this attack as like an attack on uh, academia in and of itself and not necessarily of like post-secondary institutions, which I think are two different things, like academia versus post-secondary institutions, like ideas versus like the institutions that house those ideas. So I think that 
it would really benefit uh, the academic staff to also like ground a lot of like you know this political theory work or this theoretical work of like um you know there's an attack on thoughts and speech to out you know supporting those uh, who are like their 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 autonomy and their lives are being affected directly like through their jobs and stuff like that so i guess like at the end of the day my my two big thinks are you know silence is violence really and the second thing is like it is just so inspiring to see like people who are literally being kicked at every turn literally like mm-hmm. uh you know they, like that is resilience just an action and that alone is inspiring enough um is just incredibly inspiring so that's kind of just like i guess my thoughts on everything um but yeah uh it's always it's always the people who are being uh, hurt the most that have the loudest voice and that's just like it's just like super inspiring i don't know it's just crazy agreed honestly i Another thought I have on this, speaking of silence, complicity, is actually I would really love for student leaders on campus to be more vocal about how cuts are affecting people. Is, is that an opinion from the opinion article? I, I know. I, it's it's very, very spicy. Um, but, Improvise, adapt, overcome. <laughs> <laughs> but no, honestly, like I, like especially this semester, our, like the student union is an institution that's meant to fight for students. That's why it's a union. It's not a business provider. It's, it, it can be a great source of services. But at the end of the day, a union is meant to advocate for students' needs. And in a semester where we've needed a student voice, I just feel like we very rarely had a public one. Um, you know, when it comes to pushing administration, our student union is so often so hesitant to do it. I think the biggest thing that speaks to that is the fact that Bill Flanagan used student union, the student union executives. He made a video with them where he basically talks about listening to student union leaders and it's just them all laughing with him, despite the fact that Bill Flanagan's changes are going to affect students as well. Like the, the university administration's academic restructuring, academic restructuring and administrative restructuring are going to affect students. Um, I, I would I would like to see more advocacy efforts from them. You know, they they retweeted the video with this thing that was like, you can't hear our voices, but like if you read our lips, we're asking him for a sexual assault prevention coordinator. And to say that's tone deaf would just be the bare minimum, to be honest. Sexual violence on campus is something that happens every single day. And I think it's metaphorically speaks volumes the fact that Bill Flanagan literally muted their voices and put music over it. Because in my mind, that's probably that would appear to be how the university administration has has thus far in public treated them. I can't speak to their relationship outside of that, but in public, I haven't seen a ton of like actual pushing of the administration, which I would, uh, which would benefit students, to be honest, and professors alike. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think a big, uh, kind of a big factor in, in maybe why there, there hasn't been maybe as loud of a student voices as you'd like to see is, you know, with things being, online i think that that's a factor because i know a lot of people are very disconnected especially this semester from the u of a and and from the campus environment it's kind of just like i do my classes i submit my assignments and that's all my interaction and i think when you're not on campus and you're not maybe as directly exposed to to some of these developments um it's it's kind of easy to overlook it and i think that that, that's kind of the importance of, of even podcasts like this um, this is an opportunity for for students to come and, and hear about what exactly is going on at the UA, what kind of new new developments there are. Um, of course, like P has mentioned a few times, you can always go to the gatewayonline.ca. Um, we have excellent coverage there from from uh, Pia and and I mean, yeah, 
Mitchell and and Kadra. Pia sometimes too. And um, Tom. <laughs> well, arts and culture, we, we try to keep it light, but opinion and news, um, you all really uh, dive into dive into the the big issues, and and we appreciate you for that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think uh, I think that's that's probably a good note to end on uh, for this our second episode of the Byliners. Um, always come back here when you're when you're craving some new venues and also some 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 headlines just talking about pop culture and, and news more widely um welcome pia this is your first episode how'd it go how do you feel pia uh you know i think that my brain hurts um <laughs> we, talked <a> lot, <laughs> we talked a lot about a lot of different things and honestly that's, that's what i like to hear med- yeah, you know, it's mental stimulation. Mm-hmm. Something we need a lot of uh, during this pandemic. So, I, no. uh, listeners, it's a Sunday evening. So, truly, like, usually my brain is completely off at this time. So, very thankful that she got some chance to do a little jog today. <laughs> yeah, no pain, no gain. Hopefully, everyone's brain hurts right now. That's what we will. That's what we want to be known as the the brain pain podcast. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Missed opportunity. Honestly. Yeah, yeah. I think I think <laughs> I think I'm slowly um, losing the plot too. It is it is kind of late for me too. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, thank you um, everyone for tuning in to our second episode of the Byliners. Um, we appreciate everyone who's who's tuned in the last couple episodes. Um, if you're listening to this now, it means you probably have found us on the streaming platform. But just so everyone knows, we're up now everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, and, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, make sure to share the episode, like it, um, subscribe, um, leave a rating. We always appreciate those ratings. Five-star ratings only, though. If it's anything lower than that, uh, keep scrolling. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) uh, but yeah uh, we'll see you all uh, next week does everyone just want to say bye 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 much love everyone Uh, we'll see you